records the activity of the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus. And really what it's doing, it's recording how Jesus is at work in and through his church, the activity of Christ even after his resurrection. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 15, and I think we'll read down to verse 21. This is one of those chapters where you could read the whole thing, but we'll just read down to verse 21 for the sake of uh, brevity. So, beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with, these, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, I want to, this morning, expand a little bit on that section of scripture and uh, we're dealing with the topic of legalism now some of you will be familiar with that terminology others may not be well we'll explain what it is and uh, how to avoid it this morning um, so the first few chapters of acts uh, if you were to read through that book you would see that they deal with problems that originated outside of the church they dealt with uh, persecution that the church was dealing with, uh, difficulties that were coming the way of the Christians from outside. 
But from this chapter onwards, um, we're dealing with problems that originate inside the church. And uh, the problem here is legalism. Now that's not just a first century problem. Uh, some of you will be well aware that legalism still exists today. And so this is bang up to date for us. So it has relevance for us today as Christians. And so this morning, what I want to do is uh, define briefly what I mean by legalism, I define the term, and then we're going to look at some principles that will help us to avoid it. In case you haven't worked it out yet, it's a bad thing, and we want to try and avoid that. So what it is and how to avoid it based on what happened in this passage. So uh, let's look at the first question then, what is legalism? Well, legalism is the improper use of either God's law or other rules. It's the improper use of God's law or of other rules. And it can take different forms. It doesn't always look the same. And this is an important thing we need to remember. It doesn't always look the same. The first form of legalism is where you're trying to attempt to keep the law in order to be made right with God. You think it's going to make you right with God. So you say to yourself, well, if I just try to be a good person and tick all my religious boxes, then God will accept me. Right? That's the first kind of legalism. It's not right. It's the first kind of legalism. That's probably the most obvious kind, right? but there's others. The second kind is where you think, well, okay, I don't think I have to do stuff to make God like me, but once I am a Christian and I do have salvation, I believe that I have to keep doing this stuff to maintain my salvation. That's the second kind of legalism. Right? They're not quite the same thing. Right? In one, you think that you're doing stuff to get God's favour. In the other, you're doing stuff to think that you keep God's favour once you've got it. Right? They're, they're two forms of legalism. And the third kind, which is more common, but easier to slip under the radar, is this kind. The kind where you as a Christian judge other Christians, primarily, or maybe it's other people, where you judge people for not keeping certain codes of conduct which you think ought to be obeyed, but are not biblical requirements. Mm -hmm. Right? Hopefully that's clear. That's the third kind. That's more common than we like to admit. Mm -hmm. um, but they're the three kinds. Doing stuff to get salvation, doing stuff to keep salvation, or judging people because they don't do what you think they ought to do. Mm -hmm. Right? They're the three kinds. Right? Now, in this passage, what we're really dealing with primarily is the first kind of legalism, uh, which is obeying laws in order to try to be saved or to get God's favour. Uh, but what we're going to do is learn how we can avoid that kind of legalism and in the process we'll avoid all the other kinds as well. So let's look at what happened first of all. Let's look back at verse 1 because that really tells us what's going on. It says in verse 1, Some men came down from Judea. Now they're coming from Judea to another place in Antioch. So they're coming from a, gen a Jewish church mainly to a church that's full of people who are not Jews, right? So, some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And if you look down to verse 5, they expand on that, and it says, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Right? So, that's the first kind of legalism, isn't it? See that? That's the first kind. They're saying, you must do this stuff in order to be right with God. Right? That's what they're saying, and that's wrong. <laughs> Making salvation dependent on what you're doing, on your works. 
Now, why is that a problem? We all say, well, it's wrong, but why is it wrong? Because it contradicts the gospel. See, it contradicts the gospel. It's acting as if Jesus never did anything that he did. It's, in fact, it does away with the need for Jesus altogether, doesn't it? Right? If you can make yourself right with God, then what do you need Jesus for? You don't need a saviour, do you? You just need to be good. Well, I think if you look at your own heart, you know that you're not good. And so you know that's a problem. So it's wrong, isn't it? Right? And I look in the mirror and think, it's a good job I'm not dependent on my works. Because if I was, I'd have no chance, would I? And neither would you. Right? So this is wrong. This is what, but this is what they're teaching. They're telling people, they're telling Christians, you need to do this stuff, otherwise you can't be saved. That's a mixed message at best, and a really, really unhelpful, untrue message at worst, isn't it? Now, to some of us, of course, this is glaringly obvious. And uh, it, it, you feel like it hardly needs to be said, really. And, and yet, it's at this very point that the world's idea, the world outside of the church, their idea of what Christianity is, pretty much lines up with that. If you ask the average person what is a Christian or what a Christian's like, they'll say Christians generally are people that keep the rules so God won't send them to hell. Right? I know people have defined Christianity that way for me when I talk to them. They say, well, you Christians, you keep the rules because you're afraid of what God might do if you don't. Yeah? And uh, the other thing, of course, is that they perceive Christians to be judgmental because other people don't keep the rules. So you think you're better than other people because you do the right things and they don't. You see the problem here? Now, a Christian, of course, is far removed from what that says, isn't it? A Christian, of all people, understands that their deeds can never make them right with God because their deeds are full of holes. Everything that we do is tainted by what we are, isn't it? You know, we are, we are sinful people by nature, and even our best attempts at doing good stuff are always flawed. There's one of the, uh, the Puritans who uh, said long ago, he said, even my best prayer has enough sin in it to send me to hell. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it quite like that, but it's true, isn't it? It's true. That's, that's the problem. We, you see, we can't be good enough for God because God is perfect and we're not. That's, that's, that's the way the land lies. Um, and so the idea of a self-righteous Christian ought to be an oxymoron, really. It should, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Um, if you understand the gospel, then you understand that your own righteousness doesn't get you anywhere. And so how can you be judging about someone else? Because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? So what we were saying earlier about Psalm 1, it's got this list of all these things that the, the righteous person does. And as you're going through it, you think, well, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. But Jesus Christ did and does. You see, this is the difference. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God, and then he died the death that sinners deserve as a substitute for his people. And we're only made right by faith in him. You see, it's everything he's done is, is perfect, and by faith, we latch onto it. You see? It's a bit like he is, if you imagine a train... Um, Christ is in the driving carriage, and we're simply the carriages that follow behind it. Right, he's the one pulling us along, we're just attached, following. And a Christian's obedience to God, and this is, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't do the right thing, and we shouldn't try to, but a Christian's obedience to God is a result of our salvation, not the cause of it. 
Otherwise, you're putting the cart before the horse. It, it doesn't make sense the other way around. Um, we fail to obey on a regular basis. We all know we do. But Christians, of all people, ought to be the least judgmental people in the world. Sadly, that's not the case, is it? Even if we're honest, not always the case, but it ought to be the case. Whenever we share the gospel with someone else, we're just like a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, aren't we? We're just saying, look what God has done for me. This is how you find it yourself. That's what Christians are doing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing this morning. That's what we're all about. We're not saying, look at me, I'm religious, look how good I am. We're saying, look, Jesus is perfect, and the only way to be right with God is by faith in him. That's, that's what it's about. Okay? And that is why legalism is such a destructive thing. Because it has the appearance of uh, being spiritual. You know, People who keep a load of rules often come across as if they're very religious, don't they? Oh, well, I don't do this, I do do that, I do this three times a day, I don't do that three times a day. There's a whole list of things you could put in that slot. And it comes across as if it's very spiritual and very mature. But actually, it contradicts the gospel. It contradicts what the Bible teaches. It teaches you effectively that you can be good enough for God if you just try hard. But that's not true, is it? You see, a legalist, someone who believes that stuff, actually has a very shallow understanding of human nature and sin. They have a very shallow understanding of sin because they obviously think that they're good enough to avoid it. Um, they don't seem to realise the depth that sin goes to. Even the best things they do, they have flawed motives, they don't do it perfectly, but they think it they do. If they understood sin properly, they would realise that they can never earn God's approval by anything they do. So, that's why, in verse 2, if you look there, Paul and Barnabas sharply disputed and debated with these legalists. It's funny, isn't it? You know, you think of Christians throughout the ages, and the, the image most people have of them is being um, very pious, but very overly meek and mild, wouldn't say boo to a goose. Uh, and I think men struggle with this because we want a man's man. You know, you want a man that will actually do something. Well, here you are. <laughs> if you want a man's man, there you go, it's in the text. They didn't just go, oh, well, you know, who am I to judge? I can't say anything. No, Paul said, right, this is wrong, and we're going to sort this out. And that's what they did. Right? So they had a sharp disagreement with these men. Uh, no small dissension, it says here, I'll, I'll say. It's an understatement. They had a sharp disagreement with these people. And um, the matter was so serious that the church in Antioch, where this was going on, decided to take the matter to the Jerusalem church and the apostles to get an official verdict on this. Um, Paul and Barnabas were right in what they were saying, but they said, look, this is such a big deal, and if, if we allow this to carry on, it will destroy everything that we've preached. So we need to take this to the main church that we, got, we came from, and we're going to set this out once and for all. This is what it is. This is the gospel. So they go and do that. They take it to the Jerusalem church. And that council that was held there dealt with this problem of legalism once and for all. It dealt, it put the final nail in the coffin. Um, this, this tells us some principles that we can get in how to avoid legalism ourselves. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to draw from that account here. And the first principle is this, that only God's word has the authority to tell us what we must do. Right? Only God himself, and therefore his word, understood in its proper context, can tell us what we must 
do. Notice the wording there, must do, or we must do. <coughs> look at what Peter says from verse 7 onwards. Just look at Peter's words here. It says, after there had been much debate, so they've, they've thrashed this out for a long time already. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor, nor, sorry, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, see what Peter's done here? He first of all states that God is the one who's in charge of everything that's happened. Notice that he starts with God. He says God is the one that's in charge of what's happened. And then he goes on to how we should behave as a result. So he reminds them that the law was a burden that nobody could bear. He says that. And what he's doing here is he's interpreting the Old Testament in its full biblical context. In the light of what Jesus has done. So he's not just going to the Old Testament and saying, oh, well, look, it says here, you must do this. What he's doing is he's taking that and he's looking at it in the light of what Jesus has done for us. And he's saying, look, this is how you're to understand this now. He's showing us that we have an inability to keep the law. And that inability is designed to lead us to Christ. That's what it's for. It's designed to make us seek after him. Because salvation has always been through, through faith, by God's grace. And he then says that if you try to make people rely on the law as a means of salvation, now get this, he says if you do that, you are putting God to the test. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's a punch in the face, isn't it? He says not just, oh, you've got a bit of a problem. He says if you do this, you're putting God to the test. It's quite a serious matter, isn't it? Legalism puts you in opposition to God and his purposes for salvation. So this is something we really need to cut off at the root, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then later on, when James starts speaking, from verse 14 onwards, I'm not going to read all of that, but you can read it later yourself. When James starts speaking, what he's doing is he's interpreting the current events in the light of biblical revelation. And so what you have here is both the principles and their current day application. That's what's going on here. The apostles are saying, look, this is what God's word says, this is what Jesus has done, this is how they marry up, and therefore this is how you should live as a result. You see, gospel obedience for a Christian is not just picking isolated verses out of the Bible and saying, see, it says there we have to do this, therefore we've got to do it. You can't do that, can you? Otherwise, you could pick the verse... Uh, Judas hanged himself then you can pick the other verse go and do likewise, marry them up and say off you go you see, it's silly isn't it and yet we do, that's an obvious example but we do do it quite often and people make a lot of mistakes like this they just go to a random part of the bible and say oh well, um, they went and killed a thousand Israelites, well we've got to go and do the same no that's not how you read any book is it you don't just dive into the middle, pick a random sentence out and go see you could make it say anything couldn't you 
And this is, this is what legalism ultimately does, though. It takes things out of context, and it makes an argument for them that's not valid. And, see, this is what the apostles were doing here. They were enabling people how to... They were enabling people to understand the word of God and how to apply it in daily life. That's what they're doing here. Only God's word, understood in its proper context, can tell you what you must do. They didn't just react to current events in a pragmatic way, which is what we might tend to do. They didn't say, oh, well, you know, this is just the situation we're in, we'll have to just do whatever works. They appealed to God's word as their final authority, seen in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that. So that's the first thing, only God can tell you what you must do, and he does that through his word understood in context. Okay. Next principle. There's only three, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> Next principle is this, that personal preferences are not the same as biblical requirements. Personal preferences are not the same thing as biblical requirements. When you read this, you can see that there's two significant things about these legalistic men which made them so persuasive. They had several, there were several characteristics, but the first thing is that they were professing believers who recognised Jesus as their saviour. Right? So they weren't someone that came from outside the church and said, oh, we don't believe in this Jesus lark, you've got to follow our rules. That's not what they did. They were people who would have claimed to believe in Jesus, and they were right about a lot of stuff. They were right about a lot of things, and so that made them persuasive. And the second thing that made them persuasive is their church affiliation. You see, they came along to the church at Antioch saying, oh, the church of Jerusalem has sent us down here. They think, well, why is that important? Why does that make a difference? Well, Jerusalem was the first church, wasn't it? It was the church from which all the others sprang. And so it's the church where the apostles were. The apostle James was there. And so you can imagine them coming along to this church in Antioch saying, well, we've come from the church in Jerusalem and James says you've got to do this, this and this. And you imagine the Christians in, in Antioch who were young Christians, they might have thought, well, if the apostle James says we've got to do it and these guys come from his church, well, surely we must do it then. You see how it can become an issue. It lends credibility to their argument. And you can just imagine people thinking, well, they must be right, because they've come from the big church, and we've got to do what they say. Now, of course, on the other hand, just diving into the narrative a bit, that would have made Paul and Barnabas look like the bad guys, wouldn't it? Arguing with the people who came from the big church. Arguing with the people who came from the apostles' church, so to speak. And you can see how these kind of teachings creep into churches and become destructive, can't you? You can see how people are persuaded by these things. That's how it happens. It's very easy, actually, to go along with something that's not a biblical thing um, just because other church members are doing it. Or just because other churches are doing it. Or because well-known Christian leaders do it. Or public figures do it. But what we have to do is not put our preferences above the word of God. We have to do what we do as Christians and as a church. We have to do what we do because of biblical conviction. Not because of traditions. Not because of common consensus or herd mentality. You know, it's true that Christians are sheep. That is true. 
but that doesn't mean that you follow the herd blindly. We need to learn to distinguish between opinions and preferences and biblical requirements. It's important that you know how to do that as an individual Christian and also collectively as a church. We need to know how to do those things. And so Paul and Barnabas here are sent by the Antioch church to go to the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem to discuss the matter, and they want to confirm what's actually being taught there. See, they don't just rely on what these legalists have said and go, oh, okay. They say, all right, well, we'll see about that. Let's take it to the apostles and talk about it then. And that's when the whole thing unravels and they find out that what they're saying is not true after all. And that's, that's what they do. It turns out that none of the elders in Jerusalem were teaching any such thing. And Peter explains in verse 10 that we just looked at that believers have no right to burden other people with laws that nobody could ever keep. We're saved by grace through faith, not by law keeping. He's not saying that Jewish believers weren't allowed to practice their customs. This is an important point here. He's not saying that a Jewish Christian couldn't retain their Jewishness. Right? He wasn't saying they couldn't retain some of their cultural practices. But what he was saying is that the things they choose to do are nothing more than preferences now. They're not required by God. Right? You can apply this to any number of things in life, can't you? There may be things that you do in your life as a result of your culture or your upbringing or your background. Some of those things are not unbiblical, they're not wrong, they just are what they are. You can keep doing those things, but don't expect other people to do them. Right? That, that's, that's the issue, that's the difference between a preference and a biblical requirement. You can do the thing yourself in good conscience, but you cannot expect other people to do it if God hasn't told them to do it. Right? That's what we're talking about. And that goes hand in hand with the first principle, doesn't it? The idea that God, only God can tell us what we must do, and then we have to respect that people's preferences are preferences, and only that. That's the second principle. Third one, and last one. You need to be flexible in the non-essentials. You need to be flexible in non-essentials in order to avoid making other people stumble and struggle. Be flexible in the non-essentials. Right? James lays this out for us in verse 19. Let's have a quick look there. Verse 19. He says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You know, notice that? He's saying, look, you've got all this Jewish baggage, right? So don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. They're becoming Christians. They've embraced Christ as Saviour. Now don't just go and chuck a load of cultural baggage on them and say, well, you've got to behave like a Jew now. Because the Gentiles will be thinking, what? I thought it was about sin and believing in Christ and knowing God. I didn't realise I had to do all this stuff. Well, you don't. <laughs> That's the point. So James is saying, don't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meats, from strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, there's an apparent problem in this passage. If you're sharp, you've picked this up. First of all, it appears here that James is contradicting himself. Have you, have you found where I'm talking about? Initially, he says, don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. And he says, but I'm going to write to them and tell them this stuff. You think, well, hang on. I thought you said, don't give them a load of rules. And now you're saying, but tell them to do this. How does that work? What's going on there? Remember, we need to understand what he's saying in context. 
This is the important thing. We need to know why James is saying what he's saying. That's the key here. Now, all the things that he mentions, when he says, but I'm going to write to them and tell them to do this, all those things that he mentions are things that were associated with pagan worship practices, yes. pagan worship ceremonies. So what he's doing here is he's telling the Gentile church members to avoid doing things which will needlessly upset the Jewish believers. You need to preserve the unity of the assembled church. And so this is what he's saying. Certain things, of course, they needed to be avoided because they're inherently wrong. So imagine you've come from a completely, let's put it in a modern context, you've come from a complete background where you've got no interest in the church whatsoever, and then somehow you get converted by the grace of God, you end up in a church, but you've got no idea about church or anything, right? And you've got all these things that you used to do. Some of them will be wrong and you'll need to get rid of them. Others will just be things you did that are not inherently wrong, but they might not be very helpful for other people. So, um, for example, he lists sexual immorality as something that they need to abstain from. Well, we all know that that's a moral issue, don't we? Right? So that's something he's saying, you've got to stop doing that, because the pagans used to do it all the time. As part of their worship practices, a few younger people here, I won't say too much, part of their worship practices, they used to do some stuff that was a bit unsavoury, and they had to stop doing that. But they also did stuff like eat meat that was prepared in a certain way because of pagan rites and festivals and well, there's nothing inherently sinful about that, it's just meat. But you see, what James is saying here is it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like going to a group of ex-alcoholics okay, and boasting that you're free to drink beer. Right? Now, I enjoy a good beer occasionally. There's nothing inherently sinful about drinking a beer, but it's not very helpful if I go to a bunch of ex-alcoholics and say, look, I can drink beer. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Probably not the best thing to do. And this is why there's this mixture in here. There's, there's James saying, look, this stuff, you've got to stop that because that's wrong. But he's saying, but also, don't go and do this stuff because, yeah, while it's okay to do it, have a bit of sense. Don't go and do it in front of the Jews who have been, for years and years and years, have been told this is not what you do. So don't go and parade your freedom in front of them. Technically, they don't have to do it either, but because they've got a sensitive conscience, because they've heard the law read, and it's still read. See, in that time, the law of Moses was still read in the synagogues. They'd hear it every Saturday. Every single Saturday, they'd walk down the street and they'd hear the law of Moses and all its prescriptions read out. And that would remind them of all the rules they had to keep before. And so then they go to church on the Sunday, and then the Gentiles say, hey, let's have a drink together, let's have some meat. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. It would be a struggle for them. Nothing inherently wrong with it, but it would be difficult for them. And the point James is making here is that we need to be flexible on things that are matters of preference or that are not biblical requirements. You need to be willing to show a bit of charity to other people. You need to be willing to show some grace. If people have different opinions and preferences to you, fine. If they're not things that are sinful, if they're not things that contradict the Bible, let them be. It's okay. And if contrary, if, that, if you're doing things that are okay, but you know they're going to cause other people to struggle, well, just don't do them while they're around. You know? That's, that's the message here. And so you pack all of those things together and you've got some principles that help you avoid being a legalist. Right? God's word tells you what you must do. Those are things that, to the best of our ability, we need to endeavour to obey. 
Will we do it perfectly? No, because we're sinful. But we should endeavour to do it. And when we fail, we ask for God's forgiveness. And because of Christ, you've got the great news that just because you fail, that's not the end of the road. You fail and you come to Christ, you know you're forgiven, you get up, you carry on. The slate's clean. That's the beauty of forgiveness, isn't it? But that's God telling you what you must do. The second principle is to remember that your preferences are not the same as biblical requirements. There may be things that you've done in church for years and years and years that are just traditions. They're not biblical requirements. You cannot expect other people to do everything the way you want to do it. If I'm touching on a few nerves here, that's good. I like to do that occasionally. (laughs) Arthur and Kevin have got to deal with the fallout. I can just go home. (laughs) So I'll just, you clear up afterwards, bro. (laughs) And the final thing is just be flexible. Now, these are common sense things, really, aren't they? Um, and this, but the Bible is full of this stuff. It's full of things that it's not. It's not all complicated stuff. Some of it is stuff that we just need to remember. If you want to love your brothers and sisters, this is the kind of stuff you need to remember. And this is what makes church life work well together. It's the glue, isn't it? And we don't come to church to try and be more righteous than other people. You come to church because you know that you're not righteous, and we all need the same Christ, the same Savior. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's, it's about us trying not to impose our rules on other people, but seeking to obey God's law together. That's what we want to do, isn't it? Now, let me just throw out a few, in the minutes I've got left, let me throw out a few difficult ones for you to think about. I'm not going to give you the answers to these, by the way. I'm just going to throw them out there and let them sting. (laughs) Um, This has quite a lot of reference to what we do on a Sunday, doesn't it? Um, Who determines how we should worship God? Who's the Lord of the church? Is it us? Um, No. Is it the government? No. It's Christ, isn't it? Only he has the authority to tell us how to worship. Now when we worship God, um, we worship God in ways that he tells us to do, but we don't worship in ways he hasn't commanded. Are there any things that you at Hauling do as a church that God has not told you to do? I'm not saying there are, by the way. I'm just asking you. As I said, I don't know. I'm going to give you the question. You've got to think about it. Are there things that you do as a Christian on a Sunday that God does not command you to do? Are there things that you as a church do that God does not command you to do? Have a think about it. We pray, don't we? We read scripture. We sing to God and others. We observe the Lord's Supper. Why do we do those things? Because God has commanded those things. Why don't we do certain other things? Other churches might do them, up to them. Why don't you do them? If the answer is because they're not things God has commanded, you've got the right answer. Right? That's what we should be doing. So you need to avoid doing things that inhibit people from obeying God. Are there things that you do that make, other pe- make it difficult for other people to do the right thing? Again, I don't know if they are or not, I'm just asking. Are there any things that you do that make it difficult for other people to do the right thing? Do you prioritise things that other people don't prioritise? Do you prioritise things that will make it difficult for those who want to worship God to do it properly? It's a bit vague, isn't it? But I just want to let you think about these things. Here's a question. As someone who's a new believer... 
if they came into the church at Hawley on any given Sunday, would they feel overwhelmed and out of place because there's a lot of religious stuff going on they've got no idea about? Do you take the trouble to explain to them what's going on? Do they understand why you do what you do? These are all things that help us to love one another better, aren't they? Let's just remember those three points. Remember that um, God is the one who tells us what to do. Our preferences are not the same as God's requirements. And you need to be flexible in the non-essentials. And above all, we remember that we all serve the same Christ. And it's by virtue of his work that we're saved. And we can all say amen to that, can't we? Amen. Well, in a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Now, those of you who are uh, believers...